It is my pleasure to bring the last message for, uh, uh, for this retreat, so please join me in, uh, in prayer. Dear God, we are so thankful for your word, um, because through the word, as Pastor Dave has taught us, we can see clearly. Our eyes have been um, corrupted by sin. Um, we were lost in darkness, but through the light of your word, through the light of the gospel, Lord, you have given us eyes to see, to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of that sacrifice, and to receive the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, as we come forth before your holy word, may we come before it in humility, knowing that as we behold the beauty of Christ, that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, so let's recap again. Let's recap again what we've talked about so far about work. We know that work is not just, does not just have instrumental value. It has intrinsic value. Work is inherently valuable because it is ultimately a reflection of who our God is. And so what that means practically is that when you go into the workplace, you don't necessarily have to start up a Bible study or you don't have to start up a prayer meeting in order to directly glorify God. You can glorify God directly by simply doing your work faithfully, understanding that what you do is a reflection of God's character. And at the same time, you can appreciate the work of unbelieving coworkers in the secular world because their work also reflects the character of God. Uh, it's, and I think about this, it's really awesome. You know, God, God's sovereignty orchestrates things so that even unbelievers live in such a way to bring Him glory. God will glorify Himself whether a person wants to or not. God will glorify Himself whether a person is aware of it or not. And I think that is absolutely amazing. Um, but as we talked about last night, something has happened with work. Uh, the fall has happened and corrupted work. And in the book of Genesis, we learn that Adam sinned against God so that his transgression corrupted both humanity and it corrupted creation. And the corruption, the combination of this corruption has affected work. So sometimes you go into the work, uh, working, uh, working world or your office and you get frustrated with work in and of itself, and there are times when you have a difficult time because you're working with colleagues or you're working with a really uh, a difficult employer. So the combination of the corruption of humanity and the corruption of creation affects the curse of work. And um, deception, bribery, cheating, manipulation, intimidation, cynicism, abuse, and sexual harassment are just a few of the problems. Now, in the pain and frustration that you might suffer at work, you're not to start directing your eyes to the next career or to the next uh, position or even to retirement, but you are to focus your eyes on what is to come. You're to focus your eyes on above to heaven, focus your eyes forward to the coming of the perfect times. And uh, because th- those, are when, those are the days when work is going to be made anew, uh, when it will be restored. So our heart, needs to be at a place where we are looking forward to the day when Christ will return. Now today, I want to talk about how we are to practically deal with the corruption of work, um, uh, corruption in the workplace. Um, you, know, um, you know what kind of heart that you should have, but how are you to deal with maybe the problems of materialism or unreasonable hours or questionable ethics in the workplace? 
And the answer is this. How do, you, how do you deal with those kind of things? As Christians, you are to redeem your work from the corruption of the fall. Now, before I get into what that looks like and how to do it, I want to first explain the theology behind that, okay? Um, and I think, this is, I think this is really cool uh, as I was kind of studying this. I'm really, I'm really excited right now. Um, uh, so work has been affected by the fall due to the corruption of two things, right? The corruption of man and the corruption of creation. We would expect, therefore, that work will be returned to its former glory, when humanity and creation is renewed at the end times. Yes? Right? Makes sense. The full redemption of work is eschatological. So how can we redeem work right now? That's an interest, that, I think that's a really interesting question. So if work is corrupted because of the corruption of humanity and creation, then we would expect that work to be restored to its former glory, when humanity is restored in glory and creation is made anew. So the redemption of work, the full redemption of work is eschatological. So how is it that we can experience a redemption of work presently? That's the question. Um, To answer that question, we need to develop our understanding of salvation. A lot of times when when we talk about salvation, we talk about ourselves, right? How we got saved. We got saved from our former way of life how we are going to anticipate the day when we see our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about ourselves, justified, we're sanctified, we're going to be glorified. It's us. But what I wanted to do, uh, do is broaden that perspective of salvation um, because it's going to help us understanding this, this concept of work. Let's say you were given powers one day. This is not the children's sermon, but let's say you were given powers, right? You were given powers to create to be able to create, okay? And God said, I want you to create hundreds of fishes. That's what I want you to do. Now, if you were to create, f- not fishes, fish. Fish, right? This, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Uh, so <laughs> uh, to create fish, hundreds of fish, what else would you create? What do you naturally think of? Water, Right? Right, if you think of, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what, what you get. Water, right? <laughs> because when you create the fish, you need to also create the environment in which the fish will thrive. The two go hand in hand. And, and so our existence, right? Now our existence goes hand in hand with the rest of creation. Okay? So when God created the world, we were created along with it. Now, when the fall happened, it just messed everything up. We were messed up, and creation was messed up. So what is God going to do? Well, he's going to wipe everything out and make everything anew. And so he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Um, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. It says the following, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening for the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens and a new earth. So creation has been corrupted, so God is going to just make things anew. He's going to destroy it, make a new heavens and a new earth. Now with the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth, God is going to recreate, I guess you can say, a new humanity with the elect. He's starting over in a sense. So just as God fashioned Adam forth from the earth, those who are dead in Christ will rise from the dust with a glorified body in Christ. You see that? So Romans chapter 8, verse 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So humanity was made along with creation. Because of the fall, humanity was corrupted, creation was corrupted. So what God is going to do at the end of the day is create a new heavens and a new earth and resurrect us from the dead in glorified bodies. And the two go hand in hand. You see that? You see that? I'm I'm making sense. I'm not going crazy, right? right? I'm making sense here. I always tell my congregation not to me because sometimes I ramble and sometimes Brian tells me, nobody understood what you said. And then I was like, oh, that's not cool. So, like, uh, I ask people to nod with me if I'm kind of going through this. So, but that makes sense, right? That makes sense. Our, our, creation, our existence is tied with, goes hand in hand with the rest of creation. Okay. Um, now, as the elect, we are waiting for this future day. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And we are waiting for our new bodies. We are waiting for our future resurrection. But what's crazy is, okay, what's crazy is that God allows us to partially experience that future recreation right now. He takes future, the future reality of new creation and a new humanity and brings it into the present so that we can partially experience it right now. And that experience is in our salvation. That blows my mind away. So we experience a future reality. And it's for that reason some theologians call our salvation an eschatological salvation. Um, It is the present experience of a future phenomenon. Listen to the way Paul describes our salvation, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. I'll just read it for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You guys see that? Our salvation is... Garbed in the terminology, our, our salvation is garbed in the terminology of creation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, you hear creation terminology in our salvation. You see that? As for a physical resurrection, which is a future event, when the corruption of creation is, will be undone, The Apostle Paul teaches that we get a foretaste of that in a present spiritual resurrection. So we get a foretaste of our future physical resurrection right now in a spiritual resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that is in the context of resurrection in Romans chapter 6. The old man in Adam is dead and crucified and now the new man is alive in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 
And then we have John chapter 1 through 5. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1 through 5. And also keep your hands on Genesis. We're going to be flipping back and forth here. So John chapter 1, 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now you think about that. In the beginning, that reminds you of what? Creation. It reminds you of creation. John is alluding to Genesis here. Take your Bibles, turn with me, Genesis 1.1. So keep your hands on John, and we'll flip to Genesis. We're going to flip back and forth. because I want you to see the parallelism here. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then flip back to John chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. Let's look real quick. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Here we have a direct reference to creation. Right? Uh, Verse 2 to 3, a direct reference to creation. Then look at verse 4 of John. It says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Flip back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says this. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Go back to John. John chapter 1, verse 5. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then flip back to Genesis. Now the Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The illusion should be pretty obvious. John is presenting the coming of Jesus Christ in the garb of creation. Now, what's the point of doing that? What's the point of framing the coming of Jesus in creation terminology? Is it just stylistic? No, there's a purpose here. What John is trying to do is to show how our personal salvation in Jesus Christ is experienced in the context of a new creation. A new creation that we are looking forward to when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth. Even though a new creation is a future event, it has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is eschatological in a sense. Our present redemption is the experience of a future reality. That's why when everything, when we get to heaven, our salvation is going to culminate in glory. We're going to experience the fullness of what we are experiencing right now. Now, That's amazing. Because what we have right now is this is really good. The fellowship, the forgiveness of sins. God is our Father. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The promise of eternal life is really good. But that is going to culminate in glory in that future day. But for now, we're getting a foretaste. Right now, the new creation has been inaugurated. Um, Now, if our new creation... And our resurrection is experienced right now, then the redemption of work is not something that is isolated to the events of the future when God creates the new heavens and the new earth and resurrects the elect. 
So remember the fall of work, right? The fall of work, this is work, is connected with the corruption of humanity and creation. Okay? The undoing of the fall, right? The undoing of the fall will be fulfilled in the resurrection of the glorified humanity and the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. But since the resurrection of the elect, the new man in Christ, a future phenomenon, is miraculously experienced in the present, then the full redemption of work in the future can be partially experienced in the present through us. You see that connection? Restored. And the future event is brought in, right? And then work is also running away because they're connected. Do you see that? And that's how you string the theology of work right there. Um, So the reason why we can partially redeem work right now is because we are a new creation. And work will be fully redeemed in the future days. Um, So that's the theology. Isn't that cool? it like blows me. I, I look at stuff like this. I'm like, wow, God, you are so smart. You are so wise. Um, and I get excited when I learn things like this. Um, anyways, uh, you redeem work. Now, the question is, how do you redeem work from the curse? Okay, how do you do it? Okay, we, we've developed a theology of it. How do you do it now? You redeem work from the curse by delivering work from sin and a secular perspective unto righteousness and a biblical gospel-oriented perspective. Okay, that's how you practically go about doing this. Um, I think the best way in which we can help, I can help you guys understand this is to first for me to give you examples so that you know what it looks like. And then after that, I'll give you principles that you can use to, to implement it. Okay? Um, so let's, let's get into examples first. Examples of working with a gospel-oriented perspective. Uh, the first example I want to use is uh, work in the healthcare system. Now, in that line of work, right, you've got to think, in what ways would the gospel worldview affect the way that I work or affect the way that I think through work? Okay? The, affect the way that I work and affect the way that I think through work. And several, uh, there are several ways you can approach this. I think the most obvious is the fact that when you go and help someone get better physically, you are, in a sense, imitating the Lord Jesus Christ when he healed people who were broken by, uh, by disease and um, uh, bodily ailments, and you're ex- practically extending love as Christ did it. So that's one perspective you can approach, uh, through which you can approach this, uh, this job. But not only is there a parallelism with what Christ did for the sick, but as a Christian, you also bring in your understanding of the human condition. Okay? You bring in your biblical understanding of the human condition. Unlike the unbelieving world, we don't just believe in the material world. We believe in a material and spiritual world. When it comes down to mankind, us, we believe in both the body and the soul. Therefore, a doctor, in wanting to help someone, should understand the holistic need of an individual. Does that make sense? The holistic need. Remember, I talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones last night and how he worked for the famous physician Sir Thomas Horder. And Lloyd-Jones, again, he saw 70% of the cases could not be categorized under a medical criteria. The, the fundamental problem was not organic, but it was spiritual. These guys were gluttonous. They were, they were drunkards, and their sinful lifestyle was causing them to have these difficult problems. Now, Horder felt like it wasn't his business. He's like, you know what? We just got to deal with the physical stuff, and we have no business dealing with that person's lifestyle, but Lloyd-Jones disagreed. Right? He just disagreed. He goes, no, that's, that's not what we should do as doctors. 
And Keller quotes Jones, who, who says the following. He says, we argue for the whole of the weekend. My contention was that we should be treating the whole of the person's life. Ah, said Hoarder, that is where you are wrong. If these people like to pay us our fees for more or less doing nothing, hey, then let them do it. We can then concentrate on the 35% or so of real medicine. My contention was that to treat these other people, taking into account their whole life, was real medicine also. All of them were really sick. They certainly were not well. They had gone to the doctor, perhaps more than one, in a quest of help. So Lloyd-Jones understood that the condition of man as the Bible presents it. He had a biblical worldview. We are both physical and spiritual. So the physical affects the spiritual, and the spiritual affects the physical. We experience this, right? Sometimes when you get depressed, you don't want to eat physical. When you are tired and sleepy, that affects you spiritually because you become more irritable. The two are connected. Lloyd-Jones understood that dynamic. And so when he saw these people with these problems that are stemming from their spiritual deficiencies, he knew that he had to help them to be whole as a, as, as both a human with a body and a soul. And so even though he, couldn't deal, he could only deal with the physical, he wanted to bring in other people who can help him with things that he himself couldn't deal with directly. So in order to work from a gospel perspective, a healthcare provider might see himself imitating the Lord Jesus Christ or um, view humanity like Martin Lloyd-Jones from the dualistic nature um, that is presented in the Bible. But you know that perspective, that gospel perspective, can be broadened even more. For instance, when you're dissecting a cadaver, right? It's crazy, I think, you guys doing that. Uh, but when you're when dissecting a cadaver, you can look at the complexity of man's body, right? You can see it. And you can praise God and uh, worship him who has fashioned us within our mother's womb. At the same time, you could look upon a cadaver and you might be reminded of the reality that we are dust and to dust we shall return. You can be reminded of the reality of sin and of death. And to know that even after death, there is life. This is the kind of perspective you need to come into your job. Um, so you're beginning to understand how this works, right? It's not just, I just got to do what I got to do. It's, it's much more profound than that. Now let's go to the other extreme. Let's go into the arts. Okay, we talked about, uh, I guess, the sciences. Let's go into the arts. Uh, when I speak about the arts, I'm talking about music, painting, writing, and film. The arts are unique in the sense that it is a form of self-expression. It serves as a means to communicate a worldview, uh, a, a feeling, a political position, or a joke. Um, and so for the Christian, the arts can do what other fields of work may not be able to do, and that is express the Christian worldview, express the gospel, or express Christian values and principles. It can do that directly. Um, so there's, there's no Christian way, like for instance, there's no Christian way to cook a steak. Right? So an unbeliever can cook a steak, and a believer can cook a steak. I'm not going to be eating it. I'm like, oh, that is, that is holy right there, right? It's just... <laughs> A sprinkle of grace, you know, some mercy. Like, yeah, I, can't, I can't tell the difference. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I don't know if there's a Christian way to pull out a wisdom tooth. Uh, um, but there is a Christian way to write the lyrics of a song. There's a Christian way to write a novel. There's a Christian way to film a movie. And um, Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that what you express has to be explicitly a presentation of the gospel. 
But there should be a conveyance of principles and beliefs and feelings that coincide with the Christian worldview. Um, I think of the group, uh, the, a, a group that does this well, I think, is, is Thrice. You guys know Thrice? Uh, it's, a, it's a band. It's an alternative band. And then it's a, the head, head guy is like a, uh, it's a Christian. He's a believer. And the crazy thing about them is that um, they not only minister to believers, but they, they're very popular uh, among the unbelieving world. And I think it's because the unbelieving world has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Uh, and I think they interpret their songs from like a postmodern like a perspective. But when they sing their lyrics, there's an objective meaning behind it. This is one song I, I really like. It's called Dead Bolt. I don't know if you guys, but it goes, I just close my eyes and I'm already here. It's already too late. You know, I, I, I know uh, it's nothing but lies, but they sound so sincere. I find them too hard to hate. And she calls from the doorway, stolen water is sweet. So let's drink it in the darkness if you know what I mean. You know the song? Uh, it's a, uh, and she calls from the doorway, stolen water is sweet. And so let's drink it in the darkness if you know what I mean. And that's why I'm not the praise leader. You know? <laughs> but uh, these lyrics are taken from the books of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. And it's about adultery. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13 to 18. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Um, so this is a reference to that. And it's, it's, it's really cool. It's really cool how they put it into lyrics. Now the conveyance of the Christian faith doesn't even have to be as explicit as this. I like to think about the, uh, the MasterCard commercials. You know, you guys know those commercials? I don't, I don't think they have it anymore, but I kind of, I remember in college and stuff, I saw a lot of it. It's really cheesy, but it works. You know, it works. It's like, it says like a leash, and it's like $20. Or uh, a doghouse, $100, right? And then you have this like puppy running to this little kid, and it's like a new friend, priceless, right? It says something. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, and then it goes on to say, it says there are some things that money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. I go, oh, that's, that's good, right? That's good. Uh, I feel like my dad watched that commercial. He'd be like, what are you talking about? $350, you know, the, the, the puppy. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, but it's, it, it's so good. I mean, what a great message that is, right? What a great message. In a world where money is easily idolized, this commercial tells you that there are some things that money can't buy. There are some things that are more important in life. Isn't that true? Doesn't that resonate with, with what we believe in? So even though you might not necessarily express the gospel explicitly in your work, you should strive to present thoughts and ideas and affections that are consistent with the Christian worldview. Now these are just two job fields. Um, and here we have a variety of people, all of you guys, who have a variety of jobs. Some of you are engineers, computer programmers, an accountant, investment banker, counselor, or teacher. And each and every one of those fields are going to be unique in the way you work out your gospel worldview. It's going to be unique to you. That's why this is so hard. I can't just tell you one thing and it's going to solve all your guys' problems. The problems you guys face in the, work, uh, the working world is going to be unique to you. 
And, um, and so the way the elders here, the elders at your church, are going to be able to help you is for them to know more about your work. You have something that they don't know. You know the context of your work. You know your struggles. You know the hardships. And they have something that you don't know, and that might be biblical principles on how you should think through it. And some of the problems that you come through might probably stump them, and what you guys do is you guys talk, you meditate, you pray, and you think through these issues and problems and try to resolve it together. And it's actually a long journey. It's going to be a long journey for all of you. Um, Keller... uh, came across this problem, and uh, he, he said this in, a, um, uh, in an interview. He says, one of my first epiphanies, and it's regarding go- the gospel impact on work, he says, one of my first epiphanies was when a soap opera actor became a Christian here at Redeemer and came in to meet me. He said, now that I'm a Christian, I have two questions. First, what role should I take and I shouldn't take? I'm assuming that stories, uh, that stories don't have to be religious stories to be good for people, but what stories are good and what stories are bad? Okay, I said, what, what was your second question? He says, what do you think about method acting? In which you don't act angry, you get angry. You don't act lustful, you get lustful. You get in touch with something within yourself and really live it. I said, that doesn't sound great. But uh, I didn't know where to go. Because he wanted to be discipled for his public life, not just discipled by being brought more and more into the church. As soon as he starts to say, I've got these issues about what it means to be a Christian in the acting world, I realize that we're almost on equal footing. I have information he doesn't have, and he has information I don't have. It would be sort of an egalitarian uh, egalitarian discipling, community discipling, and I wasn't equipped for it. That was probably my biggest epiphany when I realized this is a big, long journey that we're going to have to take as a church. And, um, and I would say that's applicable for every single church. It's a journey that you have to take with your elders, and it's a journey that the elders are going to be taking with you as you guys try to figure out, how do I go about my job in such a way that can bring God the most glory? And um, this is the most difficult for those of you who have jobs that are different from everyone else's. Uh, for those of you, I know there's a lot of people in the tech industry, so one of the cool things is that you guys can come together and begin talking about the same struggles, the idolatries there, and begin to think through, as a community, how to work through that. And so you've got a lot of brains focusing on a single problem, but if you're by yourself, uh, you're the only one doing that kind of job, it's unique to you, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but it's still possible to work through it. And you have elders who love you, and they're willing to sit down with you and to... Uh, uh, think about how you can approach work in a way where you can better glorify God. Um, now, with that being said, let me get into the principles of work for a gospel worldview. Okay? The principles of work. And I want to I phrase these principles in the form of questions. <clears throat> so I got, I don't know how many do I have. I got like six of them for you. Um, I think the first question you got to ask is, what are the common idols people worship in your line of work? Is it power? Is it money? Is it fame? You need to make sure you watch your own soul so that the idols do not usurp the place of God. So what are the idols there? What are the idols in the working place? I'll give you guys some time to jot down the notes. The second question is, what are the underlying principles that drive the company? 
do they intersect with the Christian worldview? Do they need to be changed? If it does, in what ways can you shift these principles? You know, some companies are driven purely by profit. People can be driven for recognition and fame. These, however, are not principles that should be driving the Christian. Should not be driving the Christian. Third, does the work culture resonate with the Christian faith? Are the people that cut throat? Do your coworkers unhealthily overwork themselves? Is the culture a one of laziness? So is there a way in which you can influence the culture for the better? That's one thing you should be thinking about. Fourth question, or uh, fourth principle, examine the industry's outlook on people. What is the industry's outlook on people? Are people perceived as statistical numbers or valuable individuals? And valuable individuals, why? Because we're made in the image of God. So every person is valuable to us. What's their underlying view on the human nature and the human condition? Fifth, what are the moral principles that pervade the industry? Are there practices of immoralities that you have to avoid? Are the immoral principles so invasive and so unchangeable that you cannot escape it and you have to quit your job? Six, what are the ways in which you can help and serve your coworkers to grow as effective employees? Sometimes it's easy to get caught up with yourself. When you think about work, you just think about how well you are doing. And sometimes you don't think about the person next to you. Well, how can you bless them and serve them so that they become effective as an employee? Now, in all these things, you might not have the power to change the culture, the freedom to do your work independently from the principles or the culture and the immorality that might characterize your workplace. Now, some of you guys might find yourself in a situation where you have to work within a rigid system. Um, in that kind of case, uh, Keller says this. I thought it was really very helpful. He says, one of the things less senior employees can do is ask questions about the company's mission and if it's a sound one. Treat it seriously and help keep it in the conversation. Leaders often feel overwhelmed by the cynicism and the apathy of their employees and lose their drive to hold true to the company's values. Your care and commitment to those values, assuming they are good ones, could be just the encouragement your boss needs. So that's one way of thinking through it. How can you really uphold the values of the company if it coincides with your Christian worldview in order to encourage your boss to really push that and to propel that forward in the business? Other things that you can do is grow in competency and seniority in order to move up in the company so that you can gain power and influence in order to make the necessary changes that that company needs or that business needs. So don't think short-term, think long-term. A lot of times for us, I mean, we're kind of the generation where we switch jobs one after the other after the other. And it's very easy to think short-term, but also think long-term. How can I stay here, gain seniority, gain a level of influence in order for me to change the company for the better? And um, you're going to have to pay your dues patiently before an opportunity might come for you to make the changes that are necessary. So be patient. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things Alexander, you guys know Alexander Strzok, he wrote a book on biblical eldership. He went to, uh, uh, he spoke at a conference, and it was, he was a really nice guy, a uh, really goofy older man. I love spending time with him. Um, but he was talking about the, this, 
basically similar problems that younger pastors might find themselves in. They find themselves in a, in a context where there's a senior pastor who may not be the most biblical guy and proud so that he doesn't want to change his ways. And, and I remember Alexander Strzok, he looked at us and he said, you know, just, uh, just be patient. You'll outlive them. <laughs> I was like, like what? I was like cracking up. I'm like, ah. I was like the only, I think I, I think I might have been the only one laughing. I was just like, <laughs> but that was hilarious, you know, because he was so serious. You know, just be patient. You outlive them. But I was basically like, just wait because they're eventually going to die, you know, and then you'll be able to make the changes necessary in the church. And I started thinking that is, that does make sense though. You know, it makes a lot of sense. I'm going to live longer than them. I will, I'm going to, well, they're going to die before me and uh, I'll be able to make the changes that are necessary. I got to be patient. Um, <laughs> and I expect the same opportunities are going to arise within the company. Eventually, you are going to be the seniors in the company or the business so that you can make the changes. But if you keep switching from here to there, you may not necessarily get that opportunity. And if it doesn't happen, at the very least, you can learn the skills, the ins and outs of the industry so that you might have the opportunity to start your own business. Right? Do a startup. I guess that's really popular up here, right? To do a startup. So remember to be patient. See what opportunities might arise. Don't just think uh, short-term, but think long-term. You know, I know as you guys begin to apply everything that you learned here today and over the weekend, it can be daunting because you might not know where to start. and You might not necessarily know what to do. But you have to remember that the very fundamental issue has been dealt with. I mean, think about not the mess of your jobs, but think about the mess of our condition. I mean, we were spiritually dead. We were charged with sin before a holy God. We were destined for eternal condemnation in hell. And our, so our redemption, our redemption, not the redemption, our personal redemption required nothing less than the Son of God coming down, taking on the form of humanity, going to the cross, then dying for our sins, facing the condemnation that we deserve to suffer resurrecting from the dead so that through faith we might be united with him to crucify the old man so that in union with him we might be resurrected unto a new life as a new creation in glory. The hard part is done. God took care of it. The foundational problem has been dealt with. Our soul has been redeemed. So as you move forward to redeem your work, don't despair, don't get discouraged. Um, Pray for wisdom. Ask for counsel. Think, evaluate, meditate, Plan and persevere. And as you do this, set your eyes on the day when everything is going to be restored perfectly. Set your eyes on the day when the new uh, new creation will be made, when the new heavens and the new earth will be made. Set your eyes on the day when you will be resurrected from the dead, physically. And until that day, bring a foretaste of heaven into your workplace, into your 9 to 5. God bless you guys. Join me in prayer. Father, we learned about work and um, how to redeem work um, at the office, uh, the business, the company. And a lot of it was practical, but uh, I pray that we would understand that the practice is derived from the theology. Um, the theology of, uh, of restoration. Um, the biblical truth that one day we will be resurrected from the dead the truth that one day we will uh, experience uh, the recreation of heaven and earth and how amazing it is that we get a 
those future events have been inaugurated in the work of Jesus Christ so that right now we have resurrected from the dead spiritually and that we are right now a new creation. God, I pray that even though work will be fully redeemed in the future, that we will bring a foretaste of that, uh, that beautiful um, uh, truth right now into our jobs. God, give us wisdom so that we might know what to do. Give us boldness to work it out. And in all of this, help us to rest in the truth of the gospel which motivates us and propels us to live in this way. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.